0: Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Hi, I'm David Plotz, the founder and CEO of CityCast. Please don't fast forward. This is not another ad. I'm here to ask for your help. I'm a lifelong Washingtonian, and I mean lifelong. I got here before the first zoo pandas did. I saw John Riggins win us the Super Bowl on my 13th birthday. I even wrote my college thesis on Mayor Marion Barry, for goodness sakes. I care so much about the city and this region. I want it to thrive, to be a place where all kinds of people can live together and make a good home and build community. And since you're listening to CityCast, you probably feel the same way. You share that love and joy and sometimes frustration with our city. That's why I want to ask you to support CityCast's new membership program. I started CityCast because I wanted to make DC a better place. And we're doing it one podcast and one newsletter at a time. Our small team hustles every day to keep you up to date on what matters here in the DMV. The Connecticut Avenue bike lane, the 911 call center crisis, the holiday markets, the last six restaurants I've tried. I learned about them all from the CityCast DC podcast and the Hey DC newsletter. But we need your help to keep this going. We're a startup, and we need support from listeners like you to make sure we're here for years to come. So will you become a founding member of CityCast DC? It's only 8 bucks a month, and you'll get ad-free podcasts, members-only perks, first dibs on live events, and more. But mostly, you'll get the satisfaction of supporting something that's making our city a little bit better every single day. Please sign up at membership.citycast.fm and become a founding member today.
1: Today on CityCast DC. So I've lived in DC for a long time, and that has meant sometimes encountering situations where I need to call the police. But I also recognize that not every situation warrants summoning someone with a gun and the power to take somebody to prison. So what do you do? DC is part of a research project exploring just that, alternative emergency responses in the city, Gloria Gong, executive director of the Government Performance Lab at Harvard University, is here to explain how it all works. Today's Wednesday, November 29th. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. Thanks so much for being here, Gloria. Of course, I'm excited to talk with you. So what exactly is DC's alternative emergency response system like? How does it work?
2: So the way that alternative response works is that when someone calls into 911, either for themselves or reporting someone else in crisis, it gets sent to a crisis call center and is then triaged. And in most jurisdictions, the primary things that jurisdictions can send out are of firefighters if the call has to do with a fire, EMTs if it's a medical emergency, and for all other calls, they send out law enforcement officers. And a lot of jurisdictions have realized that law enforcement officers are in many cases not trained or prepared to handle some of the types of crisis calls that are coming up and some of them that have been very, you know, frequently salient for many of us are when those calls have to do with mental or behavioral health crises. And so in D.C., there's a crisis response team that has a long history of working with the community on things like homelessness and mental and behavioral health that could be dispatched in lieu of a law enforcement officer if the call is appropriate. So is
1: that why D.C. needs a service like this? If in case, Just so there's someone else to call if having a, an armed law enforcement officer is perhaps not the thing that is needed?
2: We saw a real upsurge in interest in these programs over the last few years, I think particularly in response to the murder of George Floyd. That really horrifying event made many jurisdictions aware of the fact that they're often sending law enforcement officers out to respond to crises that really don't have to do with something that needs someone with a gun and a set of handcuffs and the ability to arrest you and take you to jail. And there have been many other, I think, examples. Elijah McClain is one that often comes to mind for me, whether it's somebody who is acting differently than other people. Someone thought that they looked like someone should check on them. But when law enforcement officers arrived, that interaction escalated to something that resulted in a really tragic death. Um, And so many jurisdictions, I think, including D.C., are thinking about how to invest in programs that can give people the right response at the right time.
1: What does it look like when one of these folks goes out to respond to a call?
2: Yeah, you know, I asked that same question to Dana Brooks, who runs DC CRT team a little while ago. And she told me a story that I was so struck by, where she said they got a call about a man who was weaving in and out of traffic. you know, He was walking when he was walking in between cars. He was gesticulating with his arms. He was talking to himself. And because of this new program, that call was sent not to a law enforcement officer, but to the CRT team. The CRT team went out on site And they talked to this individual. And one of the things that Dana said is she said, you know, for folks who are not trained in this, this person probably looked dangerous. He was waving his arms around in the air in a way that might have looked like punching. He was shouting. And that's the kind of situation where we've seen in many jurisdictions, things can go sideways really fast. You can ask someone to lie down on the ground, they don't comply, and it moves really quickly into use of force, sometimes with really, really tragic consequences. And instead, in this case, they were able to talk to him to tell that his behaviors were very likely the result, either of some kind of psychosis and delusions or the medications that he might have been taking to respond to those and to de-escalate really easily and then to get him medical transport to a facility where he could get help. And I think that's the kind of interaction that, alternative response holds the promise for for many jurisdictions is that folks who are in trouble can be met by people with expertise who are able to engage them, able to de-escalate the situation and then get them connected to services rather than what we see happening so often where there's tasing, use of force, and in some cases, folks being seriously injured or killed.
1: What does it look like from the caller perspective? Like, what number do folks call and then what happens after that number is called?
2: If you're living in D.C., there are two ways that your call could end up getting sent to this alternative response team. One is if you call through 911, those dispatch callers are now being trained to screen that call, listen for some of these types of variables, and then send your call to the access house line, which could then connect that call for help to the community response team. Access Healthline also has a direct number. So the other thing that you can do as a caller in DC is you can look up the Access Healthline number, call it directly and report a behavioral mental health crisis or other type of situation that you think doesn't merit law enforcement or EMT response, but could benefit from on-site response from something like the community response team.
0: David, thanks for chatting with me. So like you and I both have cars in the DC metro area and sometimes they're great, but sometimes they can be a hassle. And I heard you had car issues, man. Yes, my car like me is old and falling apart. (laughs) And so I wanted to get it fixed, but one of the truly unpleasant tasks I find in the world is getting your car fixed because you have to take it usually somewhere extremely distant, extremely inconvenient, arrange some alternate form of transportation. And so I heard about Rota, rota rota.com and I went on the rota.com website And they will come and pick your car up, take it from you, and then do the work and bring it back to you. And so I made an appointment on Roto, which was easy as pie, beautiful user interface, um, for the work that I wanted done. The valet showed up at around 10 o'clock at my house as exactly on time, very easy, just handed him my keys. He drove off with my car. About an hour later, April called me. She said, here are some things that we found with your car in addition to what you want to do. She sent me videos that Michael- Wait, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah i'm not a car nerd so i like want to know the nitty-gritty of what's happening because i i don't know stuff a million percent they sent me the video there was a particular belt that was had broken and they sent me a video of it and they sent me a list of sort of here are the things that were recommended here are the things that seemed urgent to fix and i could choose what i wanted to fix and sent that back to them which took me like three minutes michael the technician fixed it they then texted me and said oh your car is on the way back my car was back In front of my house at 2.30. I'd given it to them at 10. It was back in front of my house that afternoon. Also, note, the valet did a much better job parking in front of my house than I do. (laughs) Don't they always? So much closer to the curb. And it was an incredibly pleasant, super easy experience. And they were very trustworthy. They were clear about what they were going to fix. And it was incredibly convenient yeah so this like seems like a dream uh i have used them before but it's been a bit would you use them again for something i would like use this? rota again in a second i would use and they have a discount for us too for citycast listeners so if you nice. go to rota.com they have the discount code citycast20 and you get 20 percent off sweet uh thoughts david thank you so much for talking with me again citycast listeners you get 20 off off any rota service up to a hundred dollars using the code CITYCAST20. So go to roda.com. That's R-O-D-A.com to book your appointment.
1: When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, A Vida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. So as D.C. is investing in this program and really thinking about whether or not this can be something that is useful for our our citizens, what are some common challenges with systems like these?
2: Well, I mean, the first challenge I understand is that 911 call systems are incredibly complex, both on a technical and a human level. My understanding is that D.C. gets about 800,000 calls a year, and it has to be able to triage those very, very quickly and figure out whether there's an urgent crisis that needs to be responded to. And so when cities like D.C. decide that they're going to add an additional dispatch response, where in addition to those typical ones that we talked about, you might be able to um, send in another kind of response. They have to figure out how to integrate it into this very complex system that's already running and is processing hundreds of thousands of calls. And so typically the way that they do that is they build out something small and they build that bridge between that 911 call center and the dispatchers and that alternative response team. And then they strengthen that bridge over time so that over time they're able to dispatch more and more calls to this alternative system because it's a little bit like there's a plane that's already flying and then you're trying to build this other plane that passengers could shift over to and you have to do it while both things are in motion.
1: Well, given all that, I know that we have had a lot of conversations, some of which happening on this very podcast, about some of the heat that DC's 911 center has gotten over the past few years about, you know, not being very efficient or like giving incorrect information, having a response time that is not as urgent as the situation maybe warrants, are there ways that the city is approaching the local crisis response center differently that will make it be more effective, where it won't be plagued with the same kind of challenges we've been having conversations about recently? Can I say for
2: a second, like my Part goes out to folks who are in crisis and need an urgent response. And I'm also so sympathetic to the incredibly complicated job these dispatchers are trying to do. When I have sat side by side with dispatchers, you know, they let you put on a set of headphones and listen into the 911 calls and the amount of information that they are being asked to process in a short amount of time, sometimes from people who, because they're in crisis, are not speaking clearly or confused about where they are, it's a really intense challenge and a complicated thing to do. That said, I think one thing that is in some ways of benefit for DC is that it is starting out its crisis response team diversion program fairly small and trying to build it over time. And I think that that has the benefit of allowing them to really try to get some of those handoff pieces right. Now the drawback is, that, as I'm sure you know, DC has something like 1600 EMTs and a crisis response team of only 40 plus folks. So it means that initially, either their response times will be longer or they'll be able to respond to a smaller number of calls. And the hope is that then they can then build that program over time. But I will say, Bridget, it's just going to be tough for people to figure out how to build a system that can respond to calls as fast as we can currently respond to 911 calls. And the 911 system obviously has its own challenges, but right now there really is an infrastructure where people can get out fairly quickly, and that's a really large and robust infrastructure. And I think one of the things that a lot of jurisdictions are doing is that they're trying to figure out when calls truly need an immediate response. And when it's okay to take a longer time, but that the person you're sending out is more able to respond to that behavioral health crisis. So sometimes some of these behavioral health crises or calls that are coming in, for example, a typical call sometimes that comes in is I, see, I can see someone who's homeless and like, they look like they might be cold. Can someone come and do a welfare check or check on this person? Some jurisdictions are determining that those kinds of calls are much better served by folks who have experience working with with folks who are unhoused, but that it doesn't need to be responded to you know, within like a three to five minute timeframe and you can take a little longer to get out.
1: Are there other potential benefits of a system like this that just allow folks to get the help or the services they need more efficiently?
2: I think there are some huge benefits to these systems. The first one is, is think about the perspective of the person who's in distress or their family or their neighbors who are calling for them. It is so tough You know, if you or I were reaching out for someone in our family and saying this person's acting erratically and I think they're having a mental health crisis that I cannot handle and I need help, we would really want the people who come to be able to offer them something better than throwing them on the ground and arresting them. And so knowing that there's an alternative where they could get people who know how to speak calmly and de-escalate the situation and potentially even offer referrals to services that could help them, um, that's a much, much better system. And I think it's the system that all of us want to live in. So that's one benefit of the system. The other one is when we talk to law enforcement officers, they consistently tell us that they're being asked to do far, far more than what police were originally intended to do. And so even police officers themselves are saying we really need support from systems like this that can take some of these things off of our plate that are not what law enforcement officers were supposed to be doing, and that would allow them to preserve their efforts and energy to do things that are more related to public safety and their core mandate around preserving public safety. So I think there are benefits on both sides, both in better serving folks who are in distress and the communities that they're in, particularly communities that have been over-policed, and in helping Law enforcement officers' resources be better directed towards public safety. And, you know, many cities have shortages right now in their law enforcement ranks. And so they're really feeling stretched thin on that front. I think this can help on both of those fronts. So how does your partnership with D.C. work? So we run a national competition with calls for application. And we said we're going to create slots to help jurisdictions that are trying to build these alternative response teams, figure out how to do it. So that's the core of what the GPL does. We help state and local governments learn how to actually put their visions into action and create more just and effective service systems. Um, DC applied to our original cohort and they were selected um, in a large part because they not only had the right stakeholders at the table and the commitment to do this, but they had this pre existing community response team that really had a track record of being able to deliver these services, which is very unusual. Many jurisdictions in the country are starting from scratch on building these teams. And then because of our work with them over the last year and the progress that we've seen them being made and being committed to expanding the use of that alternative response resource, we've now renewed them for an additional year of assistance from the Government Performance Lab. And that assistance looks like us pairing them with folks on our team who can help them in a very hands-on way, figure out how to do these very technical aspects of um, learning how to analyze your call codes, analyze data with equity in mind, and then figure out what is going to actually take on both an operational and leadership level to improve and expand these programs.
1: Well, what are you all doing to expand and improve DC's response?
2: Yep, so when DC applied to us, one of the things that they said is that they had this existing resource through the access health line that can then dispatch um, their CRT team. And what they wanted to do was to better integrate it into the diversion from the 911 call center so that we could make better use of that. And so that's the program we are really working with them on is helping figure out how can they have calls come into 911 and then go to access health line and ultimately dispatch their CRT team. And that has to do with this kind of, the set of things that are identifying which call codes are safe to go out and then training the dispatchers on the protocols on how to actually send out calls to access Healthline rather than just to their kind of current set of um, dispatch options.
1: You know, we were talking about some of the national issues at play here. How does DC's system and systems in the area more generally compare to others that you've seen
2: across the country? I think DC is actually ahead. And you may know this, but one of the examples of alternative response that many people in the country are looking to is a program called Cahoots that was based in Oregon. And their program has been running for a couple of decades now, but it's very similarly structured in in many ways to Washington, D.C. And so I think D.C. has a, a model that other communities have found to be really effective. They have some of the infrastructure in place and the track record behind it. And the challenge now is really going to be how to integrate that community response team into the 911 system so that calls can actually be sent out to it. And then, you know, in an ideal world, you'd be sending more and more calls to this team. Then you're gonna raise questions around how to actually scale and expand it. You know, are they able to take not just 20 calls a month, but could they do a hundred, you know, a thousand, how many calls can they handle? And that will be an important operational question to answer as the program moves forward.
1: Looking to the future, I know that Alexandria was actually chosen to be part of the 2023-24 cohort for the work that you all are doing. Why Alexandria?
2: So Alexandria is really interesting because they are one city was in a whole state that is now trying to implement alternative response as part of their state legislation that mandates the creation of alternative response systems and um, and that's in response to the really tragic killing of a black man in virginia that spurred the creation of state level legislation that mandates um jurisdictions within virginia to create an alternative response for behavioral health so that rather than law enforcement you could send these alternative responders um, so one of the reasons that we were really interested in working with Alexandria is because our feeling is that you know across the state cities are going to need to figure this out and alexandria is at the forefront of trying to figure out what to do as a city that has this mandate from the state about creating these new teams.
1: I often see people in my neighborhood who I think could use some help, could use someone to check up on them. But I don't necessarily think that they you know, need to have law enforcement show up. Are there specific things that someone who is in that position that I'm often in should say or not say if they want to make sure that the call goes through to CRT rather than law enforcement?
2: So as you can imagine, the top priority for call takers in these 911 centers is ascertaining whether there's a high um, risk of safety, risk or threat of violence. And so one thing that I've seen folks do in call to try to flag for the call taker that this is not something where they think law enforcement needs to be involved is assuring the call taker that they see no weapons and that they don't think the person is posing a safety risk because the job of the call taker is to figure out whether there is an imminent safety risk that will require a law enforcement officer. So some of the things you can do is you can say, I'm calling in because I'm concerned about this person's welfare, but I have no concerns that they're posing an imminent safety risk and I see no evidence of anything like weapons or threatening behavior.
1: That's so useful, Gloria. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Of course, thank you.
1: By the way, we looked up that number for the Access Hotline. So if you ever see somebody in distress and want to directly reach D.C.'s crisis response team, call 1-888-7-WE-HELP or 1-888-793-4357. That's all for today here on CityCast D.C. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. We'll talk to you then.